Uh, Father, we thank you for this time you give us uh, your grace, which is abundant, um, overflowing. And I ask for grace in these moments ahead as I go before your people that we would all grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Amen. Okay, amen. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. Um, wonderful, beautiful passage for us to consider. And it's been a number of weeks, actually, because when I came back from Africa, uh, I did the two messages, um, one on well, fasting and prayer, two messages on fasting and prayer, and another special message. So now we're back in Isaiah again as we make our way through Isaiah 40 through 48. I'm excited about it. Um, beautiful truth. Sometimes even uh, in passages, uh, those of you that have taught uh, and you teach uh, on a consistent basis, you would agree that there are times when you look at a passage and you think this is so lofty, um, who am I to teach it? And you say, you should feel that way about every passage. Uh, and there is definitely some truth to that. Um, but there are others that are just at another level. And in one sense, as we've been going through Isaiah 40 to 48, I feel like I'm forever in the clouds as we go through Isaiah 40 to 48 and see this great picture of God and who he is. And we have another stop here in Isaiah 43. Let me just read it to you um, and follow with me. But now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. That's a wonderful passage, isn't it? As I have been reading through and reading through uh, Isaiah 43 and listening to it, I cannot tell you how many times I've listened to it and marked it up. And even last week, I was anticipating this even more, that we had a mini devotion on Isaiah 43 even then. And we looked at all these wonderful ideas of how God is active in saving and helping and being there for his people. And we looked at just the ideas throughout, ideas like in verse 1, he formed, he called, um, he, it will not overflow, it will not scorch, it will not burn. He has given Egypt, I will give other men, I am with you, I bring, I gather, I say, I created, I formed, I made. And it goes on to tell us in verse 10, I have chosen, I have declared in verse 12, I have proclaimed. And then even in verse 14, I have sent to Babylon, I will bring out my fugitives. Verse 15, I will make a way, a path, I will bring forth. And then he says wonderfully in verse 18 and 19, he says, I will do something new. 
I will make a roadway. I will gather waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I will give drink to my chosen people whom I have formed. Beautifully stated, verse 25, I will wipe out your transgressions. I will not remember your sins. I will pollute the princes of this sanctuary. I will consign Jacob. Action, God at the center of it. If I were to go through again, and if you were to see all the occasions where I have circled in my purple marker, if you will, uh, Yahweh, I am me, I, your, throughout. At the center of it is God. Because at the center of salvation is God. At the center of our redemption is God. The, the purpose is God. To the glory of God. It's unfortunate that people think that somehow they've been saved because there's something in themselves. It is God, is it not? So the center of all of history itself is the living God. And in this passage, uh, just look at it and you see that constantly I am Lord, I am creator, you are mine, I am savior, I am the holy one, I am he. He is making a point here that understand Judah, you are deserving, fully deserving of your judgment. You're fully deserving of being in exile. But despite that, I am a gracious and loving, and even as we sang earlier, a merciful God. And where would we all be without the love and without the mercy and without the grace of God? So it is so emphasized here in this chapter, beautifully stated. Now, if we were to go, our minds were to go to First John, we remember something. In First John 1, we are told that perfect love casts out what? Fear. And he says, there's no need to fear because um, John says, in fear is judgment. But because you do not stand in judgment, you have no fear of the future. There is no eschatological fear. That is, there is no fear that in the future, maybe I will face judgment then. I'm not facing it now, but perhaps it's coming. That is not true because judgment has fallen on that perfect servant. Because our iniquities were cast on him, now there's no need for us to fear. You may remember when you were a naughty kid growing up and you did something that you shouldn't do and all of a sudden you're your parents were coming home or you knew that they were around the corner. You had a what? A sense of what? Fear. Oh no, what's going to happen? Did they see me? What will it be this time? And as spiritual children, here's the reality. We cannot live our lives thinking, is my heavenly father going to be displeased with me now? Is he going to judge me now? Is he going to set me aside now? That is not true. And even as I communicated to you, even last week when we talked about the sufficient, um, absolute death of Jesus Christ, and when we think about that properly, there is then no need for us to fear because this sufficient death is made a way for us to come, as the writer of Hebrews says, boldly to the throne of grace. Now, the boldness is not in ourselves. And the boldness, as I even said last week, is not because we fasted. The boldness is not because we attend a Bible-believing church. The boldness is not because we have correct doctrine. The boldness is because we have the correct relationship. And that relationship is initiated by the living God, fulfilled by the living God. And so with Judah, we see here, here are people that are treacherous. They've committed covenant treachery. And why then should God be gracious to them? I mean, why? Why should he forgive? 
and there's a history of Israel and their unfaithfulness, right? You remember even uh, as they're coming out of the Exodus, they're a stubborn people. And what does God say? Let me just wipe them all out and I will make another people and they'll be called by your name. And Moses has his interaction with the living God. And he says, well, Lord, if that occurs, what's going to happen? Because your reputation will be stained, if you will, because the word will go out that you brought, the, you brought us out of Egypt just to slay us here. A history of stubbornness. A history of rejecting revelation. But let us not be too quick to cast stones. And you know exactly what I'm going to say next, don't you? <laughs> Because have you not been stubborn? Have you not been disobedient? Have you not been negligent? Have you not chosen temporal things instead of eternal things? Absolutely, we all have. And this is where we should be thankful because of a gracious God who forgives. Because he loves to forgive to his own glory. And this is what we see in this passage. Perfect love casts out fear. But we have to remember the context. And one since I've been alluding to it, in the context, we can break it into two parts, going all the way back to when uh, we last looked at uh, Isaiah in June. There are two parts to it, which was simply this, the servant and God's righteous assessment, and it was the servant and God's righteous chastisement. So briefly look back. So God is saying, I have servants. There is one servant, which is Israel. There's the perfect servant, which we looked at in chapter 42. And there's also a coming servant, Cyrus. Israel, Judah has failed. They've committed covenant treachery. The perfect servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be just that. He will be that sacrifice, but he will be absolutely obedient. And even Cyrus, the Persian, will be a servant of God to fulfill his will. But this servant... Israel, God makes an assessment of him. And what is his assessment? Notice verses 18 to 22. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or who is deaf is my messenger whom I send? And consider that for a moment, just the implication of that thought. He says, you are deaf, you are blind, he says, and you are supposed to be my messenger. It's very difficult to be a messenger if you haven't heard the message. Isn't that true? What is it that I'm supposed to say? And how am I supposed to say it? And how am I supposed to live? And what God is doing here, he's indicting Judah. And also he has already indicted Israel to say, you are a people. You are supposed to be my representatives, my messengers. But yet you've, done, you've left the message behind. You're living inconsistent with the message itself. You've decided to listen to the message of the nations instead of the message that comes from my very mouth. And then what does he say? Who is blind as, to, <clears throat> as he that is at peace with me or so blind as a servant of Yahweh? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but you don't hear. The Lord was pleased in his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. And what he's saying there is simply put, I gave you the word of God, but yet you haven't heard it. He's even taken them back to Sinai. And many, many years it has been with you. But here you are now for all of these centuries that you've had the word of God, but yet you don't hear it. Why? Because you're a disobedient and stiff-necked people. 
All right, aren't you glad? I, it makes me think about my own life and hearing the word of God. And it's rare, and I've mentioned this to you before, but I've mentioned it to you again. It is rare that a person comes to faith the first time they hear the gospel. I know that it do, does occur, but most people, they've heard it, and they've heard it, and they've heard it. And in that moment in time, what does God do? He gives them grace, and then the veil is taken away. They're, they're given a heart of flesh instead of having a heart of stone. And God doesn't allow us to remain in that state of hard-heartedness because he is a gracious God. I can still remember the time when I, I knew that I wasn't saved. I'd come to grips that I truly wasn't saved um, in college. And I still remember saying to myself, yes, I know that I don't really know the Lord, yet I don't want to change right now. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Essentially, what I was saying then, I'm choosing the temporal instead of the eternal. But praise be to God, he opened my eyes, and I stand here today being a preacher of the gospel. And he says, but this is the people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves, are hidden away in prisons. They've become prey and none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say, give them back. That is, yes, you're punished, but this is all a part of God's design. So God brings about a righteous chastisement. Who among you will give ear to this and who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel for plunderers? Was it not Yahweh against whom you have sinned? And ultimately God is saying, I'm the one that gave you up uh, for your brothers Israel. Uh, when the Assyrians came, I gave them to Israel and the Babylonians are coming, and I will give you to Babylon. So he's also saying this, because I'm the one that designed your exile, I'm also the one who would design your return. If I could give you up to the powers, I can bring you back from those powers. Because remember, the nations are just a drop in the what? In the bucket. They are nothing. They're minuscule. They're not even minuscule. That's why it's even dust that's on a scale. It's, it's immeasurable. They mean nothing to me. They're insignificant to me. They have no power that can throw up my divine power for your life and for my plan for the universe itself to glorify my name. So he says, I brought judgment, but look at the last part of verse 25. And it burned him, but he paid no attention. It's like difficulty comes, but you pay no attention to it. You know the Lord is trying to get your attention. Have you ever said that in life? Or have you ever said that to a friend? Friend, I think the Lord is trying to get your attention. If you counsel with someone, friend, the Lord is trying to get your attention. Or you've had to counsel yourself and say, the Lord is trying to get my attention. But sometimes what we do, instead of looking straight ahead at the Lord, we get distracted by other things, and we don't pay attention to what the Lord is trying to communicate to us. So you look at the context and you say, Judah is absolutely undeserving. What must they do in order for them to receive God's gracious hand again? What must they do for them to come back from exile? Is it fasting and prayer? Do they put themselves in sackcloth and ashes? Must they repent in a way that's like, so demonstrative that Yahweh would say, look at their repentance. Now I will be gracious to them. Now, what's interesting is that there are many times when the Lord would respond to a time of, of true fasting and prayer, or he would respond to repentance. But in this context, God doesn't give us an indication that right now 
He's going to be gracious to them because of their repentance. He just says, this is who I am. And I am this way because I have a covenant with you. And we knew from the very beginning that you could not keep that covenant. We knew from the very beginning that you would commit covenant treachery. And you have committed covenant treachery now. But I will, as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, I will keep my end of the bargain. Amen? <laughs> Aren't you glad that it's that way? Don't you, don't you glad that it's not truly reciprocal? Okay, God is giving 100%. I'll give... Oh, let's talk negatives. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's not God gave, I gave. God gave, I gave. No, it's not that at all. It's the living God that is keeping his people in this covenant plan, and it is unfolding. And a part of their even disobedience is a part of God's plan unfolding. So he says, um, I've chastened you, but it was righteous. Now, let's move ahead to our text. Uh, there's a beautiful structure in the text. I want you to notice there's a beautiful structure to it. And as I uh, chanced upon it, if you will, looking and observing um, and something is called uh, a chiasm. You've heard that word before. I've mentioned it before. I'm sure Bill, Bill's mentioned it before. Others have. Chiasm. We think about a chiasm. And, and if I were to draw it uh, this way, if you to follow it, uh, here is, we'll call this number one. Here's line one right here. And then there's a second line that, that builds on a thought. Then this builds on a thought. But on the opposite side of the chiasm is one. So parallel. Then there's two and a parallel and a three and a parallel. And sometimes it could be four and four, five and five. Then in the middle, there's just there's the point of the arrow, if you will. And if you look at this text, this is what you see here. So in one sense, the way that I'm going to preach through it is not really verses one through seven. It is one through seven, but not verse one, verse two, verse three. But it's looking at these thoughts and going to this center is the approach that I want to take. So here's the outline for you. And it is this, five considerations for you why you should not fear. Number one, do not fear. Yahweh created you. You see that in verses 1 to 7. So that's one. Remember what I said, verse 7. Then, secondly, do not fear. Yahweh shelters you. He shelters you. We see that in verse 2, and then you'll see that in verse 5 and 6. Then I would say, do not fear. Yahweh saves you. He sh saves you, the first part of verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But then in verse 5, do not fear, for I am with you. So he's Savior, he's with us. We might even say he's an intimate Savior because he is a Savior. But then he says, I'm with you. He is the Emmanuel. And then number 4, do not fear, Yahweh ransoms you. Ransoms you. Verse 3, notice what he says, I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. But then notice, if you will, verse 4, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. So we have exchange, exchange, ransom, ransom. But then right in the center is this, do not fear, Yahweh loves you, amen? <laughs> he loves you. Right in the center is, he's saying, verse 4, since you're precious in my sight, since you're honored, and I love you. So as I said even to you earlier, perfect love casts out fear. And God's love is in fact perfect. Do you agree with that? It cannot help but be perfect because God is perfect. 
Nothing can stem from him that is imperfect. As we said before, we should remind ourselves of things like this consistently. God does not change. And, and why does he not change? Because perfection has no need to change. We're all trying to get better in our Christian life, are we not? At least we should be. We're trying to change, aren't we? We're being conformed into the image of Christ. And so God is no need of being conformed to anything because he is sufficient in himself. And this is why he indicts Judah for following idols. And this is why he says, how dare you compare me to an idol? You formed an idol. You made an idol. It was made into a God. It one, in one sense, you might say it changed. And some of the idols even came from leftover wood that you made from a stone that you thought, well, let's make a God and let's bow down to it. And the gods are so utterly powerless. Some of them, it says you have to put, uh, if you will, splinters on it almost to make sure that it doesn't totter. It doesn't fall over. I am the all sufficient forever existing God. That's who I am. So, but right in the center, I love you. Um, people in our society, um, they are forever looking for love. And as we say, sometimes people are looking for love in all the what places? All the wrong places. You knew that, didn't you? <laughs> and I'm probably, if knowing people as I do, not saying I know them perfectly, but I've had some time talking with people and pastoring people. Some of you looked in the wrong places, did you not? You looked and thought it's there, it's there, it's there. And you found yourself dissatisfied. You're looking for affirmation. You're looking for acceptance. And the perfect love that everyone needs is this. It is the love of God because it is unchanging. It is immeasurable. And it is absolutely faithful. So right in the center is he loves you. What a beautiful thought. Sometimes people are confused and because you hear shallow preaching today and that's all they talk about is the love of God and they don't want to talk about the wrath of God or the sovereignty of God or the providence of God or the righteousness of God or the holiness of God. And that's unfortunate because it then becomes a, a misnomer. We don't, we don't understand God's love the way that we should when we do that. But rest assured, God is a God of love. Rest assured, there's nothing, uh, in one sense, one may think, well, I want to be a very lofty preacher. I'm not going to talk about God's love that much. I'm going to talk about things like, you know, um, impassibility is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about things like e eternal destination of the wicked and what should happen with them if they hear not the word of God. That's what I'm going to talk about, things like that. Now, can you talk about those things? Excellent. A student wrote a paper for one of my classes on impassibility in prayer. I interacted with him. This is really thoughtful. I really appreciate that. But the love of God, the fact that God can say and has said and has demonstrated that I love you, it's a wonderful thought. What's one of the first verses that you probably learned even before you knew the Lord? Well, that's right. <laughs> Okay, do you remember it? <laughs> For God so the, that he did what? That what would happen? Have everlasting life. And sometimes we think, oh, I've matured out of John 3.16. <laughs> huh? 
<laughs> friends, you are moving in the wrong direction if you claim that. Now, you, you can take now John 3.16, and as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and, and you have a better understanding of God and who he is and man, and you have a better understanding of theology, you can take a John 3.16, and maybe when you learned it as an 8-year-old, and now you know it as a 50-year-old, you say, oh my, what this is saying is unbelievable. Oh my, this is frightening even to think that God, sufficient in himself, would give and it would be out of love. And he would give to sinners, not the righteous. Because what did Jesus Christ say? I didn't come for uh, the righteous. I came for, what did he come for? Sinners. For sinners. God coming for sinners and you're holy. God coming for sinners and you're separated. In fact, this is the truth of God's word. And this is why this is so wonderful when we consider this statement. Don't fear. Why should you fear? Yahweh loves you. And then from this, this center of, uh, of the passage itself, all these other things are true in one sense because he loves you. Now, I'm going to work my way through I think I'm going to be realistic because I don't want to rush again. Like a couple of weeks ago, I felt rushed. I'm not going to do that. Um, unless the Lord comes back, you'll be here. I'll be here. <clears throat> and if he came back, no need for me to teach, right? <laughs> Hargrove, who needs him? <laughs> right? No need for that. We're in a better place, are we not? It's like, wow. And if somehow one of us, somebody passes away before then, uh, then guess what? You have full knowledge anyway. So it's a better position. But in the practical every day, we're going to take our time because I need to spend, especially, and it was so wonderful, even this morning as I was studying again, and I'm normally not really doing that. I go for my run. As you see, I didn't go out on the run. I thought, there's something that's missing here. And it was like that moment about love. And I decided what we're going to do is look at a biblical view of love and the theological implications of his love. And I looked at it when I put it down. I thought, that's a message in itself. There's no way I can do this in 45 minutes. So I said, the people of God will most likely come back next Sunday to hear about his great love. But we're going to lead up to it, though. So number one, do not fear Yahweh created you. Do not fear Yahweh created you. And let's remind ourselves of all these occasions um, in Isaiah uh, in close proximity here to the idea of do not fear. Look with me at 41 verse 10. What does he say here? 41 10, Isaiah, do not fear for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's a beautiful statement of God's intimacy with his people. And he says, what? I'm going to hold you, surely I will, with my righteous right hand. I will do all things right, and I will do right by you, and I will guide you like a child that needs to know where they have to go. Um, we were, I was in my, a class that I taught on Wednesday uh, we were talking about, um, you know, teaching, how God sometimes has to teach us lessons not to wander away from him. And we wander away from him, but in his great faithfulness, what does he do? He seeks us out. Amen for that. Is that not correct? And I said, you know, I have 
you know, as a parent, uh, when I'm with my kids, there have been some occasions in a department store or something like that, or Home Depot or Lowe's, the kids are wandering, and I say, hey, just stay right here, just stay right here. And they go, wow, they, something catches their eye, especially if I'm in Lowe's and the boys are looking at tools and they think power tools, I want one of those like daddy has. And they go wandering off. Now, some of you may not, this may not be your parenting style, but I'm a bit old school. So um, <laughs> when they wandered off, you know what I've done sometimes? I went and hide. <laughs> he said, left them. <laughs> I'm not that old school. <laughs> that's like, that's true old school. That's old school when you could walk back from the general store. <laughs> I've come close. <laughs> I've come close. No, but I hide a little bit. And then you see them. And, and like the scripture says, when you anxiously look about. See, they were anxiously looking about. Where is Yahweh? We're in Babylon. These are the gods are, are great gods. They must be great gods because they defeated us. And they took us away from Yahweh. So perhaps Yahweh is not as great as he says he is. And so they're anxiously looking about. And what does God say? Hold on. (laughs) I'm with you. And what I've done when I thought maybe they had learned their lesson a bit. I'm looking like that. And then I start to see their little like this. Hey, and I won't say which name. (laughs) I'll call their name. Then right away I see their face do what? Oh. Dad's here still. Give me your hand. You lost your privileges. And for the rest of the time, it's like this. What a beautiful image, isn't it? And this is what God is saying to his people. Don't be anxious. Why should you be anxious if I'm with you? Don't anxiously look about. I have a righteous right hand. Remember, this righteous right hand has created the universe. Remember, this righteous right hand has formed you, has created you. Remember this righteous right hand is the one who says to the nations, you're just a drop in the bucket. Take it. And we would do well to hold fast to his hand, wouldn't we? But we tend to slip away. So he says this in verse 13. He he says it again. For I am your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who oppose you, your right hand, who says you do not fear. I will help you. Verse 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, O men of Israel. I will help you, he says. Look at um, then 44. Look at chapter 44. Again, do not fear. 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Verse 2, he says, do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, he says. Now, interesting, he keeps referring to him as servant, but we know right now they're not a very good servant, are they? It's like in the scriptures where you see here is Paul referring to the church at Corinth as saints. Saints? But aren't you glad that ultimately our sainthood is based on our position in Christ? It is secured. Amen, is it not? It is secure. So there may be moments in life. let's, let's, Let's restate that. It's not maybe moments in life. There are moments in life when you will be inconsistent, but still a state. Because you're in Christ. Then notice what he says in verse 8 of 44. He says, do not tremble and do not be afraid. So trembling takes us back to that anxiety. What is going to happen? He says, and don't be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? 
or is there any other rock? I know of none. Why don't you trust me? Is there another God? Is, the, is it the Babylonian God? Let, let's go through all of them. Will you trust them? Would they provide for you? Now, some that were in exile would have thought that because life wasn't always bad for everyone in exile. It's amazing how one can adapt. Um, you can adapt to a foreign land. And that's why some of the people could not adapt and didn't want to adapt, the faithful, if you will. And that's what they said. Can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? No, we can't. So he said, don't fear. So despite the shortcomings of Judah, God says, I am going to act in grace towards you. I will be faithful to the covenant. Now let's look at some of these words, important words here. Creator, formed, redeemed, called. This, what do they mean? Why, why are they significant? Um, creator. You know, as we started in Isaiah 40, we've been seeing consistently throughout that God is a creating God. God is the one that creates the universe. He's the one who says, I've made all these stars. And he says, and I know them by name. And he says, not one of them is missing. So the declaration there is if I've made the very heavens themselves and I know every one of them and not one of them is missing, how could I possibly lose any one of you? No, you will return when I say return. And those that will survive the exile will survive the exile. And you will come back. And the city will be rebuilt. Because I'm the creator God. So he takes us here in this statement when he says, first, but now. So if we go back to 43.1, but now. So we, it's ended with covenant treachery. You paid no attention. So you would think in verse 1, it would be, but now judgment is coming upon you. But now I will wipe you away. But now you will, hear, you will experience my fierce anger. But it's not that. It's but now says Yahweh. And it's interesting that he would say Yahweh. But we see this throughout Isaiah verse 14. Thus says Yahweh. We see it throughout and we can't go through them all now. Why does he start by saying Yahweh? Because that's his, his name. He's the covenant keeping God. So he's saying, you have sinned against me. You don't pay attention. You're deaf. You're dumb. But now, one of my favorite, and I mentioned it to you before, it's just, it comes up so often in my mind, just because it is one of my favorite, or my favorite phrase in the Bible, which is, but God. And this is in one sense, a but God moment. And what do we see in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3? You were dead, trespasses, sins. You walked the courts of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And he says, what? But God. And what does he say? Being rich in mercy because of his great, what? Love with which he loved us. And what did he do? Made us alive. So here is another but God moment. Divine intervention has always been necessary, will always be necessary for this redemptive plan to move along. It cannot be left to the people. Israel failed. Judah failed. The patriarchs failed. The kings failed. The judges failed. The only one that will succeed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why um, in Isaiah 52, 3, 52 and 
um, chapter 53 as well, what does it say? Behold, my servant who will be what? Actually, it can be translated, my servant who will be successful. Only he can bring about this redemption. You cannot. But see, you need to understand these things are relevant for you today. They, they transcend time and they transcend culture. These are universal principles that tell us about God and who he is and how he seeks to glorify himself through redemption. So notice what he says. I am your creator. So now he has used creator before to say, yes, I'm the one that literally creates, but I created you. And then he says, what else? Oh, Jacob. And he says, I formed you. And the word is very interesting here. Because this forming is important. Why do, you, why do we say that? Notice verse 1. What does it say in verse 1? And he who formed you. Then in verse 7, uh, what does it say there? Whom I have formed. Something what we call an inclusio, a bookend. So here are some thoughts. Here is I formed you, verse 1. Here is I formed you, best, verse 7. Let's see what's in the library, if you will. I mean, when you go to your bookends, you say, what's in between the bookends? And what we need to ask ourselves, even in this passage, and even as we go further, here is one bookend, I formed you. The other, I formed you. And in between, let me understand what God is saying. And it goes even further than than that. You would extend it even to verse 21. Verse 1, and he who formed you, O Israel, look at verse 21. The people whom I formed for myself. I made you. Now, the word form somewhat different than just the creator because the word formed here implies this sense of, it's an intimate term, and it, it implies this sense of detail and care that comes with it. Look at me at the book of Genesis. So what Isaiah is doing here straight away is really giving us images that take us back to Genesis. So we see creative images in Genesis. We see this idea of formed in Genesis. We see Yahweh in, so look um, as Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, and then it says, it says in verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and, and water the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a what? A living being. So form is important. Why is it important? Because God is saying to Judah, I I took detail and care to form you. I made you as a nation. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you a law and I formed you. And God even today is, is forming us, if you will. And notice what else he says here. I have done what? Do not fear. What's the rationale for not fearing? I redeemed you. And it's interesting how we can understand the tense of the words here, and I won't get into it. But I think what he's saying, he's looking forward to what God is going to do. I redeemed you. Yes, it's the perfect tense now, but he's saying it is going to be fulfilled. I redeemed you and bring you back. Now, we know that they are redeemed people because that takes us back to the covenant, but he's causing them to look ahead. I'm the God who redeemed you and called you. And notice what he says about it, redeemed. Of course, we think about um, the book of Ruth. Does your mind go to the book of Ruth and and Boaz and Ruth? And in chapter 4, there is a kinsman redeemer. 
and Ruth will be called by his name. And even in the book of Isaiah, uh, when there is difficulty and hardship, it says that certain women will grab one man and say, we want to be called by your name, take away my reproach. And we can, and we are, that is, called by the name of, of the Lord. A name is important, is it not? Uh, and this is why we see in Scripture often um, a name was significant for uh, someone's birth. How many of you right now, like your name, do you know, is there a meaning to your name? Anyone here? Oh, volunteer. What is it? Farmer. farmer. George the farmer? <laughs> All right, good. Farmer. Excellent. All right, anyone know sort of a Yes. What's that? Give me wings. Wow, I like that. All right, let's keep going right here. Lady. Well, okay. <laughs> Lady, excellent. My maiden name was Ransom and my married name is Price, so that's the Ransom Price. Wow. You planned that. Did you hear that? Maiden name Ransom, other name Price. I'm going to come back. All right, right here. Wash tub. Wash tub. All right. Um, you know, washing the things for the Lord, using the, wor- using the word of God to renew the mind. Yeah, we, we can make it work. Yeah, I tried. You know, we're friends, so I had to try. Yes. What light. Amen for that. Yes. Okay. Ocean. Wow, vast, are they? Gift of Yahweh. Gift of Yahweh. That's an, that's, that really works. last name is Snow Mountaineer. Snow Mountaineer. Come on, mammoth, let's go. Right here. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And over here, two more, right here and right here. Yes, what is it? Mighty with the spear. Mighty with the spear. Of Ani, the herb of Ani. Oh, wow, herbal sort of name here. I guess we're like farmers who use herbs. That's good. What is it right here? The loved ones. The loved ones. All great names are important. And he says, I'm your creator. I formed you. You are called. I redeemed you. You're called by my name. And that's why it says you are my witnesses. You are my servants. We're called by the name of God, are we not? We are called what? Christians. And that's when they were first called Christians. Christians. People of the way, as the scripture says. So we should do what to uphold whose name? His name. I don't know, going back to old school parenting, um, old school parenting, where I was told this, and I have since passed on the tradition, which is either you get it together or change your name. That's right, old school. And we need more old school, because new school is not working out. Well, it's old-fashioned, antiquated methods, yeah. And guess what? When I grew up, you could leave your house, and your door could be open, and you, d- you weren't concerned when you came back. Your door literally could be open, and you say, oh, man, who left the door open? Now it happens, what are you doing? Call right, it's on. called 911. <laughs> or a woman could walk the streets at night, and it was no problem. So you can take new school all you want. It doesn't seem to be working out very well. And there's more that we could talk about. Well, let me get back to this. (laughs) Notice what he says. Okay, so you are mine, he says. So it's personal. Then let's go to verse 7. 
Because notice what he says here in verse 7. Everyone is called by my name. Remember what we said, how this unfolds. And whom I've created for my glory, whom I've formed, even whom I have made. So obviously he is communicating to Israel, I've made you, I've called you, I've redeemed you, I've formed you. And to what purpose should you live? You should live to my glory. And that's where we'll stop this morning. To the glory of God. Everything that we do, the scripture tells us whether we eat or drink or live, we're to do all to the glory of God. What does the scripture tell us? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is our purpose in life except to live for the glory of God? What was Nebuchadnezzar's problem? And and think about it for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, he is the ruler of Babylon. And God says to Nebuchadnezzar at some point in time, I'm going to use you to chasten my people. Go and take them into exile. But what does God do to Nebuchadnezzar? Because he says on his rooftop, he's looking about. And he says, look at all my glory, which notice what he says, which my hands have made. No, 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 Nebuchadnezzar. Who made it all? It was his righteous hand. Who gave you the kingdoms? It was his righteous hand. Who gives you life? It was his righteous hand. Then what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He went on a a seven-day humbling experience. I meant seven years. Seven years. Live for the glory of God. I mean, what else is there in life? For the glory of self? For the glory of your name, for the glory of a career, for the glory of accumulating things of this life that are all going to be burned and taken away, for the glory of his name. What a privilege. Whereas before, um, you live like a Nebuchadnezzar for your own glory. Now you can live for the glory of his name. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for this word you give us. And even as we would come back next week and look further at what this means for us, uh, I pray for everyone here that we would meditate on it, appreciate it. And also I pray for someone that may be here today. They don't know you. They are not living for your glory. They do not know you. They do not know the living God. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.